Some best-selling management books focus on providing a recipe for greatness, while others seek to unlock the secrets of long-term success. But a detailed analysis at the intersection of the two, one that explains how some companies manage to achieve repeated peaks of business performance, has been missing until now. Our guest has found that what matters is not just climbing your current S-curve, which is what you do to reach the top of a single successful business. Instead, he emphasizes the equal importance of the moves you must make on the way to your next business, that is, making the jump to your future S-curve. Today's book reveals crucial insights for making such transitions, including why strategic planning won't allow you to find the big enough marketing insights that are critical to superior performance, why your top team must be refreshed before performance starts to wane, and why you need much more talent than you think, especially serious talent that will find you worthy of their time. Welcome to a magnificent series, one I've been waiting to bring you for such a long time. For regular listeners of the show, you know this has been coming, I've told you. We have the author of the magnificent book, one of three we're going to cover. Today's book is Jumping the S-Curve, How to Beat the Growth Cycle, Get on Top and Stay There. Paul Nunes, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aiden. We've talked about doing this for so long now. I'm really excited to be here. I'm so happy. Paul is recently retired, which is why he has the time. You'll find out why he would not have had the time previously. Paul, I thought we'd give a little overview of that magnificent career that you've had deep in work in thought leadership, in authorship, as as we'll find out, but also in teaching others about thought leadership, strategic planning, teaching CSOs so much that you've done, including setting up elements for Accenture, a company in which you worked for such a long period of time. Maybe we give it, give us an overview of that career. Sure. Like you say, I've really spent the majority, maybe all of my career with Accenture, it uh, totaled almost 37 years, um, which is profound in these days when we talk about, you know, you have to have 16 jobs. But I did have 16 different jobs within Accenture, um, pretty much over it. So I was always changing and I was always kind of proud that I had a different, I had a named role that the name had never existed at Accenture. So I was a futurist. I was a thought leader, a researcher, uh, uh, all sorts of things that as the company grew over time. But really it started out of business school that uh, Accenture needed a a small think tank for the future of technology. So it was the technology assessment group and we kind of like Al Gore, found the internet, discovered the internet. But after that, it uh, became part of our strategy work to have a think tank. Um, And so eventually I became the head of that think tank. And the real launching point was Accenture at one point decided that what it was really about was high performance delivered. And that was a great catchphrase, but the, the core question became, what is high performance? And how you know before you can say how do you deliver it? What is high performance? And so that's really kind of the face that launched this, uh, launched a thousand ships for me because I became I was put in charge by our chief strategy officer um, back in ninety seven two thousand. Say, all right, Paul, what is high performance in business? And then tell us how do we deliver this? <laughs> uh, what is the answer for these questions? These uncomfortable questions that might get asked of us. Um, and that was really a blessing um, because it launched me with a number of uh, chief strategy officers. I've actually worked with, I believe, 13 
of the strategy, chief strategy officers of Accenture over my career, which was really, again, a great good fortune um, to do that. And, you know, we really spent 20 some years looking at this question over time. And really the three books are the answers to that. Um, and so I headed up a think tank. We were about 40 people. The Accenture research is about 300. And that really gives me one last opportunity here because I really want to say it was a team effort, Aiden, and you know how that goes. Um, so I want to, you know, start by recognizing my great co-author, Larry Downs, who's fantastic. Omar Abash and Tim Breen, two of the greatest chief strategy officers. And I think Accenture's business performance can speak to that. Great, great chief officer. So team effort. In, but that's probably the short of it. And in that time, you know, I wrote four books, uh, hundreds of articles, and was able to, like you say, teach some of the skills and some of the experiences. And that's, of course, tr tremendously rewarding. Is I like to think as a guy who was a computer science major, you know, I was a geek. I actually coded software in the old days. So if I could, I used to tell you, if I could learn to be a thought leader, anybody can. And speaking of team effort as well, I was telling Paul as well, one of the core elements of my book is this concept of jumping the S-curve, but I hadn't read Paul's book and I felt unbelievably, one bit, one part guilty and the other part actually uh, relieved because it would have brought me in a totally different element because Paul's book is so deep in research because he did that work of actually finding out what high performance is and the book is peppered with that research as well amidst so much really, really good writing as well. And as I mentioned, Paul was a thought leadership coach to many people within Accenture as well, strategists within the organization as well, which is a really important skill. But Paul, you mentioned there the four books, and we're going to cover three for this series. And then hopefully you and I might continue the collaboration in the future, because as I mentioned in the intro, you've written hundreds of articles. But I thought maybe before we dive into this book, jumping the S-curve, we might give an overview of the body of the three books because they really work together, the three books we're going to cover on this series. And maybe you'll give us an overview of how they feed into each other, maybe with some examples. For example, you told me off air, the current example of Kroger, an organization that didn't invest in its future when it should have. So let's start with the origin of why did we write the book, Jumping the S-curve? And it really came down to, like I say, this question of high performance. What is high performance business? What do you want out of business? So before you worry about, you know, how businesses succeed, you really have to define what you think is success. And that's not a really easy question, actually, because, of course, there's the idea of shareholder value and things that they, we argue all the time now. And then, you know, societal value and da, da, da. But all those things come around and make it difficult. So. We did a lot of research and did a lot of research on previous work, you know, good to great, built to last, all the others, these sort of meta studies of business performance and tried to really understand it. And what we did is we came up with a five component model and we said, well, you know, in essence, and you might appreciate this as sort of like a rugby team because <laughs> from your experience, I just realized I talk about it as a soccer team. So it was like, Profitable growth is at the core of it. So, like, you got to score goals, but then there's consistency, which is, you know, well, maybe this person scores, but do they score at the right time, and do they score a, over, a lot over time? So, you know, in baseball, is American sport, we look at, well, do you get singles and doubles as well as home runs, and you do that kind of every game, so I can count on you. 
So there's a consistency, and then there's a longevity, which is, you know, the Babe Ruth or whatever. Did you have two years, two good years, or did you have 10 good years? Or did you have, you know, so um, is there a longevity component? When I say I want a company to be great, how long do you want them to be great for? Tour d'Argent in Paris has been serving up pressed duck, delicious, by the way, for... I don't know, 400 years. <laughs> I, I, I can't even remember, but it's long. It's maybe the world's oldest restaurant, right? Now, do they have restaurants all over the world? Are they, you know, does everybody even know of them? No. But 400 years of serving the same great dish in the same location is a measure of success in its own right. Uh, and then the last one is interesting that you allude to, which is this idea of positioning for the future, which we were talking about, because one of the interesting things we really found is that you can eat your seed corn. And when a company's eating its seed corn, it can you know, the concept of seed corn is that you got to put a little corn away. You can't eat it so that you can seed the field for tomorrow. So um, we really like this idea of seed corn um, and whether you're eating your seed corn, which is are you investing enough in the future of your company to create the sustainability? Because the moment you stop, it's sort of milking the cash cow. When you really, really milk the cash cow, you can look great for a short period of time, maybe even years, but not forever. And that's really industry dependent. And we'll come to back to this discussion, I hope, a lot about the importance of industry. So anyway, you can see that you have to have this positioning for the future. And the example, you know, I mentioned of this, retail, of this retailer, this grocer, we discovered when we were studying the high performance companies, and we did about 2,000. 8,000 overall, 2,000, the Russell 2,000 or whatever. Um, and then ones which gave us about, about 800 core large public companies. We studied private ones as well. That was another challenge, you know, how do private companies perform? Because it's really all about peers. But then, you know, we found about 80 good ones. But this idea of, all right, this grocer was not investing in new point of sale terminals, was not investing in cleaning up the stores, was not creating eat-in facilities, was not doing anything that all its competitors were doing. So, of course, it was twice as profitable or more. It was five times as profitable as any other green you know, grocer, grocery store chain in the country. And everybody said, well, you cannot say there are grocery high performers, Paul, without including this store. It doesn't make any sense. I was like, no, it does, because when you score it on its investment for the future, and the, the way we discovered that was we looked at shareholder value, and it turned out that because it had high profits, its market cap was very high. But its market cap was entirely defined by its current profits. There was no expectation of future profits. There was no what we call future value built into the market cap. And so that's what kind of caused us to drive down. We said, well, what's going on here? You know, it's, it's such a great company. Why aren't investors, you know, now future value and, you know, earnings per share, right? Uh, you can have multiples, multiples, you know, lots of companies don't ever make a profit and have that. But so it's future value, you know, shareholder confidence is not a perfect measure. But it's worth looking at when you're trying to understand the value of a company. To say, well, what do investors know that I might not know about the performance of a company? And they maybe not know anything like, you know, Facebook or whatever. That's a million times earnings. 
but maybe they do know something. So in this case, we learned something and we said, no, that's not really, you know, we think there's going to be trouble. And there was. And, you know, five years later, that company was struggling. And that's what actually helped us prevent us, because which is one of the biggest risks of talking about performance, right? As you say, hey, this company's great today. And, you know, you talk about you know, sort of like GE, right? Is GE a great company? Was it a great company? Will it be a great company again? You know, you talked a lot with uh, some of your great podcasts, Aiden, with Derek uh, Van Beaver, uh, you know, and the stall points of companies. But it really is this challenge of how do we create sustained value? So starting with that, the next part was, so what did we learn from looking at all of these companies? And then that's where we really hit upon this idea. If you have those five measures, the way you deliver against those five measures demands something we termed later jumping an escrow. Because the reality is you can't do it on one product, one innovation, one technological capability. At some point, every business, depending how you want to define it, matures, and you move on to the next one. And you can think of that as a bell curve of sort of um, you know, sales, and then if you add it all up, it becomes an S-curve. So without having a picture, without making it too complicated, simply like, you know, take a bell curve, add up all the revenues or all the unit sales that you get. In fact, what you get is you get this S. It goes long, it comes up, and then it goes over. And the shape of that S, however many years it takes or whatever, varies by industry. So some products, you know, mature very quickly. Some other products last for years. So um, film, for example, in Kodak, right? Very long S curve. It's, you know, 10 years of inventing, 10, 20, 30 years of inventing it, 40 years of selling it, 20 years of taking it apart in digital film. Other curves are much shorter, right? Um, Krispy Kreme donuts, right? A <laughs> um, couple of years to figure out how to put, you know, to make donuts in a, in a store, 20, you know, two years to create 10,000 stores and then two years to sell them all off or, you know, cancel the leases because people realize they're killing themselves with, <laughs> uh, which is not, no statement against Krispy Kreme. They're great. And I've eaten a lot of them. If you could see the bottom half of me, <laughs> you would know. But uh, so there's nothing against Krispy Kreme. But it's important that we recognize and think about this life cycle of a business and then how you move to the next. So now I promised you, Aiden, that I would talk about the three books in context. So the first book, Jumping the S-Curve, was really about, okay, to deliver on those five promises of value, we need to make a successful business, but we need to do that again and again and again. And that requires being on multiple S-Curves over time, and that requires transitioning, and that's what we call Jumping the S-Curve. Now, there's a little thing called technology, which got weird, and I've been privileged to spend a lot of my life in this world of business and technology in the intersection, because over the 20 years that we were studying it, the 30 years, 37 years in business, and I mentioned I came out of a computer science background, we've seen technology, you've heard about Moore's Law, um, you understand that, you know, the core driver of change and this cap and capability, really, in everything we do is this digital world thing but this digital world thing gets cheaper or better you know it doubles in capability or halves in price every 18 months 24 months 12 months it's changed a bit over time but it doesn't really matter because nothing in the world doubles 
every anything for too many iterations, but we've already had uh, 14 doublings, whatever it is, and they think that they see the technological path to the next six mind-blowing kind of capability. So this fundamental change in capability, it really changes the nature and the speed of innovation and change. And we had to recognize that. And then we hit upon the second book, which is this idea of big bang disruption. And the core insight there is that you no longer compete solely on price or differentiation of capability. Technology is changing so fast and, de and deflating prices so quickly that you can actually get products that are better and cheaper at the same time. And that really blows, should blow people's minds. Most people don't really recognize, but that destroys everything. It destroys generic strategy, which said that you had to be either better, cheaper, or niche. That's Michael Porter's rule, no longer true at all. So we kind of, <laughs> so there's a bunch of, uh, we're gonna talk over time, we're gonna take uh, some of the, the punch out of a lot of existing thought leaders or previous business thought leaders. But so the, the nature of the S-curve changes dramatically. And we have to be, because of technology, we have to be attuned to that. The other thing technology does, regardless of the industry, is it compresses the S-curve. Everything happens faster. And that's not a surprise to anyone. If you just think about it, right? 20 years ago, you know, you, you had actually what we termed the five sort of four CEOs. There's three or four CEOs of every company. There's the inventor, founder, CEO. There's the scaler, the person who grows it big and cuts the costs and makes it profitable in a big way. Then there's the one who does the transition um, and they're the kind of change, you know, reinvention CEO. And then there's the chainsaw Al. Um, and that's the person <laughs> that's the person who cuts it up for parts and sells it off because you didn't make the jump. <laughs> now, what's interesting is when you have a company that can be 40 years old, you you know who those are. You know, so you would get even Dell's kind of a good example, although recent, right? But you had Dell, then you have the middle, then you have Dell coming back because he needs to try and create the jump. And so you struggle with that. But, you know, Jack Welch, going back to the earlier GE one, was Jack Welch a great CEO? Well, you know, is it a great company? Is he a great CEO? Well, maybe for the time, but GE is a pretty good example of a company that sort of got caught in the middle of an S-curve that started as a 40-year S-curve or even 60 or 100-year, however you want to look at it, but then wound up, thanks to technology, in a 10 or 20, you know, a 10-year S-curve and all of a sudden, you, you have to do that. But what happens is as you compress the S-curve, as the speed of change accelerates, executives, and this is an important part of our finding, executives have to manage more than one phase of the S-curve. And so that's part of why we think this is so important, is you know, business leaders need to understand everything about these S-curves because they have to manage them in combination they can't just manage you can't just be an inventor and say well it's it'll be somebody else's problem for the next 30 years to figure out how they scale this and you know and bring it to the end game um let alone you know and then so the last book that brings us to the last book which is pivot to the future and in pivot to the future we really recognized because of this compression you have to manage a top executive even in a portfolio. It's not about a portfolio of businesses. Every sort of business, and you think of even soda, 
has three horizons. You have a past, you've got the old business, the Coca-Cola, you've got the new business, which is cherry Coke maybe or whatever, but then you've got the really new business, the future. Now there's plenty of authors who've talked about this sort of multi-horizon thing, but the interesting thing is that a really a true top executive, a CEO has to actively manage all three of these at the same time. So a quick example would be like Netflix and Reed Hastings, you know, you're doing, at one point, he was literally doing DVDs by mail while doing online delivery of content while trying to figure out how to become a production company because I know what people want because I'm delivering it online and I'm keeping the stats. But one person is managing all three of these businesses at the same time. And so what we try to do in Pivot to the Future is say, how do you jump three curves simultaneously of your three, <laughs> which gets, you know, mind blowing and uh, at scale. So we don't want to, we can't cover all of that in one call. So that or in one um, presentation. So that's what, uh, you know, you and I have talked about, but that's really kind of the, the set piece of, of what, you know, the three, the triptych are doing. Brilliant, brilliant. I love how you described it. And in particular, I wanted to draw just one per particular par part that you mentioned there and shine a, a torchlight on it and go, the fact that you not only have to have this multiple mindset, the triptych of skills of managing all these multiple S curves, but also you have to have the talent within your organization to do that. And the reason I mentioned that, Paul, is the people who listen to the show are exactly the people within the organization trying to manage that change within an existing organization, usually that's resistant to that change. And you give many, many examples of that resistance. Cisco, for example, is one great example. Even Samsung, you mentioned about the Samsung revolutions, etc. And we're going to cover all those as well. But you mentioned the term there, triptych. And I, I loved that you used the term diptych in this or this first book we're going to cover today, which is the uh, the jumping the S curve, because you describe the book as the metaphor of a diptych. And Paul is a great fan of art, history, Roman ruins, etc. As well, a very very eclectic reader and also absorber of art and and nature, etc. And this is why this is such a, a prevalent example or metaphor. I'm going to show on the screen for our audience a diptych, so people know what it is. This is one from Wikipedia Commons. So I'm not using anybody's uh, work here uh, illegally. But I wanted to show this so people understand what a diptych is. And I thought we'd conduct this episode or this book in the same way. But because you actually do this in the book, you describe part one, where the companies that have successfully scaled the S curve through a winning business idea, but also managing talent, managing uh, technology within the organization and putting in place the building blocks of high performance. And then part two of the book, which is the harder part, and also the diptych, the second part of the diptych is actually how do you sustain that? And this is what Paul was alluding to there with organizations like GE, Kroger, maybe who didn't do it. But how do you do that as well? So we're going to cover that in the show, those two parts of the book, as, as best we can in the time that we have available. So I thought that would be a good way to to start, Paul. And um, maybe I'll tee you up uh, with with a great example that you start the book with, which is the example of Zenith. And many people will have forgotten about Zenith, the comp the company. But this is a great tale of how 
to jump the S-curve or not, as the case may be. Zenith was a great example just by the name because Zenith means the top of a curve. Um, and the interesting thing about the company was it had managed to jump a few S-curves of its own because it had started in radio and was sort of the dominant thing in radio. And then in uh, because of World War II and that, it started making walkie-talkies and radios for military and things. So it became really good in radio. Then it moved to television, and you know the it was became the dominant maker of television, and so it did have a couple of jumping the S curves in its history, but then it got to the challenge of Japanese the Japanese invasion, Japanese cheap Japanese electronics, and it had to pick where to go next. And it's actually interesting because it knew high def. It covers all kinds of these issues and technology and stuff because it knew high def was the future. And it started to go there. But the problem is high def didn't actually develop fast enough as a core technology to get people to move there. So it had to keep its base long enough. And this is something we talk about in the pivot to the future. Again, you start to see multiple curves and the whole jumping the S curve and the challenge. So it had to keep its base in regular TVs until it could get to high def. And so it jumped a little too fast to high def, had to come back. The Japanese were eating at their lunch. They did a couple of other things, but it turned out that the money they had spent in high def was too much and there was too little too late to be left and they didn't have any other solutions. So they essentially got squeezed out of um, the business. And we think it's a really interesting example because it does have a history of moving out, like I say, from radio to television related technologies and that. Um, but it, it has all of these things of new entrance with cheaper and sort of, a you know, the undercutting of and Clay Christensen might call that, a you know, an innovator's dilemma, which is the Japanese came in with, you know, good enough TVs. Although, I mean, it's a classic one there. And then, you know, Sony came in and had trying to try on TVs and great TVs. But essentially. It was not really a misunderstanding of the future of the technologies or bad decisions that destroyed Zenith. It was really an inability to successfully make that last jump. And what we do is we go into some of the reasons like why were they, you know, and so then if the question is, you know, some do, some don't during each of the jumps, why did Zenith, you know, not make that final jump? Um, and that's where we start to get into the, the questions of, you know, what was the technology, what was the next technology, what was the next brand in that? Let's build on that because you mentioned earlier on that you had researched all the work many of us have read and I loved Jim Collins's work, really deeply researched like your own. And one of the terms that Jim Collins talked about is companies may sometimes think that they need a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal, and they do. But you say in order to realize that BHAG, you need what you term a BEMI or a BEMI is that? Do you say a BEMI or BEMI? I'd say BEMI, but BEMI BEMI sounds better. Okay, not a BHAG, but a BEMI. A BEMI. Let's unpack that one, Paul. Okay, but yeah. So what I and we really like that. This is one of my favorite insights. Tell you the truth, was the insight of the big enough market insight. Because something I was told as a young thought leader, and I'll give you a thing, was a British person. He was up at a conference, you know, speaking, and I'm just in the audience. And he said, you know, the problem with you, Yanks, it was a British conference. So the problem with Americans is your mothers lie to you. 
because your mothers tell you you can be anything you want. And I'm here to tell you, you are not going to be the Queen of England. So get over it. <laughs> and this was a business conference, and it was like, and, and his insight was, you know, if you start with the supposition that you can be anything you want to be in business, you're going to be awfully misguided because you can't, there are many, many circumstances where you cannot get to point B from point A. This ain't going to happen, you know? It, and the exceptions where some company moves, you know, like Nokia moves from being a rubber boot company and a lumber company to being the height of um, telecommunications at one point. Well, that's an exceptional story, but it's not... <laughs> It's not the truth for every company. I, I, uh, this You should not go to every rubber boot company and say, maybe you should think about being, you know, Apple. So this whole balance of, of the truth, you know, and the capability, uh, you're matching your capabilities to your aspirations. So that's our first problem with BHAG. But what we noticed in studying the companies was an even better insight, which was that when you do that, if you're going to be aggressive and you should be about change. The ones that were most successful in our high performers were ones that had, it was anchored on what we call the big enough market insight. There was a market insight to it. And let me give you a couple examples of that. One of them was Novo Nordisk, which is now the leader in all things insulin and uh, really diabetes management. Because their chief strategy officer, I want to throw a bone to chief strategy officers, <laughs> their chief strategy officer, and many years ago, I can't remember how many it was, he had an insight, wherever it came from, but there was an insight that they grounded it on that said lots of people around the world, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people are going to get wealthy, are going to join the middle class, are going to be mass athletes. They're going to get rich. They're going to get heavy set. They're going to get fat and they're going to get diabetes. And there is nothing in the world that's going to change that for the next 20, 30 years. So basically, the writing was on the wall that we were going to have 100 million diabetic Indians. We were going to have 100 million diabetic Americans or something close to whatever it is now. You know, 300, I believe there are 300 million. Now, that there are 300 million diabetics is a tragedy. But it's one that was foreseeable 30 years ago and foreseeable enough that Novo Norsk was able to sell off large parts of its business and go to Bristol Myers Squibb and say, you know, if you're not doing anything when Bristol Myers merged with Squibb, like, if you're not doing anything with those diabetes assets because you're off on cancer, maybe you could sell them to us. So Novo Norsk very cleverly consolidated capabilities from around the world and leading capabilities in diabetes and focused on diabetes. And so you can say Novo Nordisk, which has, you know, whose stock price went to multiples and sales and all that exploded. You can say, well, you know, they were, you can find a zillion different business capabilities maybe that helped them do that. And of course you have to be very good at your business capabilities to make that work, but it's anchored in this insight. Without a world of fast-growing diabetics, Novo Nordisk, <laughs> Novo Nordisk's strategy of being the world's leading company in diabetes treatment 
And it goes on and it's great because, you know, they didn't just do insulin. They did diabetes treatment. And so they have all kinds of things for, you know, and then the monitoring and the overtime injection and even just websites for the psychology of it. It's like, why don't people take their insulin? Because they're depressed. Okay, well, how do we target diabetes-related depression? Because if you get diabetes, you tend to be, they tend to be comorbidities um, for lots of different reasons and stuff. So very broad. So it wasn't just saying, you know, let's go for insulin. It was saying, no, let's go for diabetes treatment. I'll give you another example just because we love it. Um, and this hopefully makes it so it's not single anecdote. But another one was, um, you know, Togo-san from Toyota. The way the Lexus started was, you know, Togo-san is selling these cheap Toyotas in all these different cities, and he's living in Thailand, and he's sleeping on people's floors to figure out how they relate to their mopeds and cars and, you know, cheap cars. So then he goes off to California, and he notices he recognizes yuppies because this is the age where you know the yuppies are just starting right and so there's something going on here and it turns out he's he knows like yuppies are not really rich which means they don't really want rich people's cars because at the time rich people's cars were largely not entirely handmade but they were made in very small batches they tended to break down all over the place we don't remember any of this i mean you remember maybe I can say it now that I'm retired, you know, like Jaguar, they used to say, you know, why use one part when 12 will do almost as well. Um, <laughs> but these things were a real pain to manage and, you know, uh, whatever. And you had to be rich to do that. And so he realized that yuppies would really probably appreciate a car that had all the luxury goodness, but really didn't have all these breakdowns. So we needed, so he invented the concept of the Lexus. Now to do that, he recognized, I mean, one of the interesting ones was quiet, right? Because these were commuter cars and cars with other people. Rich people's cars weren't really commuter cars, so they didn't have to be quiet. Um, to make it quiet, he had to reinvent, entirely reinvent how the engine sat and how, you know, because you couldn't have the weight of the insulation to quiet the engine. So they had to reinvent the engine. So a willingness to do what it takes, and we'll talk more about the hitting the, the spot you need to, but in, in terms of customer demand. But so he saw this opportunity. It was a big enough market insight. There was this huge insight. But again, no yuppies, no Lexus. You reminded me of something, though, with uh, Togo. And by the way, there's a Paul writes brilliantly about this. There's a, a part here that calls Togo an NFL, which means no freaking Lexus, because he was so resisted from within inside the organization but this reminded me of something we had joseph bauer on the show about six months ago or so paul and he said that it often depends on an organization if somebody has a good credit rating for successful ideas and i wanted to call that out because many of our audience are togos they're people who know they can they have a, a bm a, a BME that could work but can't articulated throughout the organization or have no record of successes and one of the things you say about togo was one of the only reasons he was able to beat that nfl tag was because he had successes yeah exactly well and this goes to the question that we'll get into a bit later which is and we can talk a bit now as well all right paul that's great but how do you how do you find this i mean so is it is it really just togo and the chief strategy officer that can do this and what we find is, you know, there's kind of two components to any of this. One is having the insight and one is listening to it. 
So how do you get a company that can have the insight and listen to it? And so we get into that a bit later in this book. In the second part, half of this diptych, you know, we talk about um, sourcing strategy from the edge. Um, so you have to have feelers out there. Uh, I'll jump quickly to that one just because there's a good example and make it real. Dockers came from Japan, was, do you know, the quintessential American pants of the, you know, the 80s, 90s, whatever it was, didn't come from America, even though every American wore them for a decade, came from Japan. It was tested in Australia. Um, and it was really Levi's ability to listen to the periphery and to say, well, you know, not be what normal company would be is like, well, I don't care what they're wearing in Japan. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and to bring that in and to have the structures, because it really is the structure. And when you think about it, and if you're a business, you know, when's the last time you listened to somebody on the edge, you know, from a different country? And we have some good examples in the book, you know, listening from Korea and stuff. And in fact, um, you know, Japan's a great one as a source historically that was undervalued because even um, Procter and Gamble's, um, cosmetics were largely uh, originated out there. But so it's not even so much the question of, well, bring in a, an occasional from the edge insight, but are you structured in that way? Do you have strategic listeners? Do you have chief strategy officers in each of the components of the businesses that get together and bring ideas? And then how do you rate those and how do you listen to those? And what we found is very interesting because uh, again, jumping a little forward in terms of strategy, it's not which strategy you use or how you create strategy. Most successful companies have lots of ways they create strategy, so they're exercising lots of different ways. But one of those is systematically bringing in people who have ideas from the, the horizons of the business. Um, and then how do you, you know, do that? So we should talk a little bit as we go on about well, how do you create an organization, a listening organization? I think some people have used that term already, but truly creating a listening and evaluating, you know, an organization that can evaluate and objectively like, hey, well, sales is growing this way. How do we test? That's usually the thing, isn't it? And, and we will come back to that because in the part two of the diptych, the other side of the picture, Paul deals with that. What organizations, how do they do it? What systems do they put in place to listen to people? What type of leadership did they have in order to listen as well? That's all covered in there. But I thought of this great Steve Jobs quote at this stage, and I'm going to put one of your quotes together with the Steve Jobs quote because I thought it worked so perfectly. You say, having a BME is all well and good, but taking advantage of that insight is an entirely different matter. From our research, we found that average and low performers often underfund BME projects and frequently quit too early when the going gets rough. That is the reality, Paul, for so many of our organizations that listen to this show. But it reminded me of a Steve Jobs quote that isn't often quoted, and I absolutely love this one. He said this in an interview, and I'll share that interview, a link to that interview. He says, things happen fairly slowly, you know, they do. These waves of technology, you can see them way before they happen, and you just have to choose wisely which ones you're going to surf. If you choose unwisely, then you can waste a lot of energy. But if you choose wisely, it actually unfolds fairly slowly. It takes years. And that patience is such 
an important skill. And and by the way, when Steve Jobs was quoted as saying that he had been successful, but they had tried to wave, r- ride a few waves before. And this is the other thing is that you're going to get it wrong. You're going to have some failures as you try to spot a beamy and maybe things just don't pan out the way you had planned. And I thought maybe before we start moving on to chapter three, which you called threshold competence before scaling, this is like build the competence within the side the organization before you need it. But I thought you might have some points on that, that patience. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a perfect lead in and it jumps a little bit to book three, but Steve Jobs is a genius to say that. And I'm flattered you combine mine with it, but it is, it's the similar insight because Steve Jobs understood something we call in the third book, um, the inevitable future seeing the inevitable future. And I've been saying for years something that I always give to uh, um, Gaulle, Charles de Gaulle, that Charles de Gaulle supposedly said, see the inevitable and act first. <laughs> the, the secret to success is to see the inevitable and act first. And I'll give you a good example. Um, you know, so digital f- photography was an inevitable, but look how long it took. Electric cars maybe is an inevitability. Because, you know, we can't have, I just looked it up, it's 300 million cars made a year. You can't have 300 million cars a year being dumped into the system, that you know, forever. So there's an inevitability. And so there's a trick to seeing the inevitable but acting first. And one of the examples we like to use, which is consistent to a beamy, but you also have to understand the plateaus, the platforms that come in the curve. Because the inevitable future of digital music, what's the inevitable future of digital music? Any song, anytime, anywhere. When you get to digital music, and that's what that's what people want, that's what the technology enables. Any song, anytime, anywhere. And then how do you go about delivering that? Well, so then there was you know vinyl records to all these other technologies. Right? But then you got to the point where Apple finally got to the point where they could sell it, but you were selling individual songs, and you had that whole model of iTunes, right? But iTunes was not the inevitable future. And in many ways, Apple was a little slow, missed a step. And that's why they had to buy Beats. They didn't buy Beats for the ear things and the great things. They bought Beats because Beats had software that did song management. So it anchored their new um, selling, the new delivery model of uh, you know Apple Music which is to copy Spotify and all the other ones that came there, right? Because Spotify got, and so like, how did Spotify get in there? Well, if Apple had seen, now people would say if Apple had seen, but the reality is, and this is really important, really important. Apple saw Spotify. Apple saw any song, anytime, anywhere. You don't create iTunes and not understand the principle, right? And this is, I only bring this up because this is one of the things in all of thought leadership that drives me nuts. There are no dumb people at the top of business strategy, my experience. And I will argue that, but it's really important. People don't make, there are no dumb people making dumb decisions. It's not about finding smartness. What happens is smart people have to make a choice of maximizing today's returns and performance versus trading off flexibility. So at some point, you have to commit resources in an inflexible way to achieve short-term goals that may lock you in a position that 
but and so resource trails and one of the great lines that I like and I'm digressing a bit or you know go to the side but so all a strategy is resource allocation an intelligent resource and it's really about how do I fully appreciate and fully see the unintended consequences of my current resource allocations and should I change my current resource allocations or should I leave them the same and that's what strategists, real strategists, struggle with every day. I've got a business. Every day, every year, I allocate monies to different parts of it. it kind of goes back to the other things like, well, why don't we get to the future? Well, if I have to take the profits of one business and put it to the future, that business isn't going to like it because that business wants to reinvest you know, its profits back into itself. And what we found again and again and again is companies that don't create the flexibility if you don't have flexibility in resource allocation, you don't have strategic flexibility, and any company that doesn't have strategic flexibility is likely to die. It's not that hard. <laughs> but what's really, really hard is how do I build resource allocation flexibility in my businesses? So I'm, I'll go up there, but that's the whole thing. But so the, the problem is you can say with, you know, you know, um, Steve Jobs didn't see, you know, Spotify maybe, or Apple didn't see, you know, any song anytime. No, they saw that. They just also saw that they had a really good business in iTunes and maybe potentially maybe didn't optimize the speed at which they transitioned to the other one. But they got it. Trust me, they got it. <laughs> it's it's a tough choice, isn't it, for, for so many organizations to – I mean, there's that. There's the resource allocation. There's the understanding of that wave is about to take off. What, like, but we have all this other stuff, and we we'll have to hire so fast to be able to resource that wave. But then there's also, and this, I'm jumping ahead to part two of the diptych today's session, or part one session of the jumping S curve, which is you'll have the old guard protecting the old way, the old paradigm, because that's where they're successful and that's where they're competent. The question of the organization pushback comes, I think, from two things. It's something you mentioned before, and we were talking a little bit about, well, it, the, the CEO, the top executives have to understand multi-horizon management and multi-curve management. Turns out I didn't want to imply that even the lowest level of employees don't need to see that. And I would say we see a bit, but the best organizations make clear to their employees the strategy and what's going on. So, you know, it should be no surprise to employees of Netflix say that even if you're working in the DVD by mail, your boss in DVDs by mail should not be telling you, you know, this is a business forever and you've got a job here forever. <laughs> it's like, no, we're going to be honest, like, this is going away. But even today, today, I forget the numbers, it's declining. It's like it's still a $450 million business. $450 million in DVD by mail for movies. Okay. <laughs> so this is, we'll talk a lot about that later in terms of premature abandonment, right? But so, but the employees, but it's really important that the employees get on board with and understand the larger strategy of the organization and how the different businesses combine. Um, and particularly, as we'll talk more about how you build a multi-horizon business, the synergies that you have to create, and I'm always a little hesitant to use synergies as a term, but the really, the, but it is true, you know, some companies do find synergies, 
regardless of how many people are, you know, have, have articulated against that concept, you know, so that, um, but, you know, across like, well, so how do I use my knowledge of what people are watching to actually sponsor new content creation, for example, but those new content creators have to understand their indebtedness to the business that's actually streaming. And now you can say, well, I don't want to invest in new content creation out of the profits of streaming. I want to just keep streaming more. So you get this duality of, you know, um, of, of balancing that, but the, but the employees need to be aware of it. And I think this idea that I'm going to be an employee that's, taking costs out. So the whole six Sigma of GE and that, and it's like, you know, so I'm a, you know, six Sigma expert, you know, I forget what they call it, but you know, the karate expert, you know, the jujitsu expert of six Sigma. It's like, well, that's okay. If you kind of move around to different companies that are in that particular phase, but if you think you're going to be a six Sigma expert in your company in one business forever, it's just not going to happen. Right. Um, so it's sort of like, you know, if you're an expert in making new Starbucks and painting them all the same colors in the, in the scale up phase. So this leads us to this idea of competence before scaling. So let's turn back to that second part, which is, you know, what happens is you make the right thing and then you have to scale it to make lots of money on it. Cause you're making a good money on little, on small sales, but that would be a lot more if it were larger sales. And what we found is that a critical element of success is this idea of competence before scaling, which is you shouldn't scale the wrong product. Um, later books, the, the two later books kind of highlight the fact that there's what we call near perfect market information. People know whether something is good or not. So this really changes the nature of trying to innovate. But even at the time we wrote this book, it was this concept of, if it's not good enough, I don't want it. And so how do I find out if it's good enough? And then how do I, once it is, how do I scale it? Um, a good example of that, uh, you know, of good enough is, well, I'll take it from the other book, um, is the Kindle. And we talked about the Kindle earlier and how much we love the Kindle. And it's like, well, how many, you know, models of Kindle did Amazon make before they had the big selling Kindle? I was like, well, zero, because they didn't participate in it at all, because they knew they had to wait until the battery life was right, the paper white technology of the eye fatigue was right, they had to wait for, so they had, there were all these things, that they, all these factors, and then the price, and this is a story I love, which is, Kindle came out at 399 bucks. Do you know why it was $399? as a target price that it had to be at. It's curious because 399 bucks is how much you can spend before you have to ask your spouse permission. <laughs> and I've been told when I use it that in India, the number was that much, that much, Paul. Uh, that much, well, I know it, it's a curve. Aiden. It's a curve. It's always a bell curve. Some people get a little more. Some people I get think, a little I less. Think it's one of the reasons we still have cash. <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly but but the insight of knowing that if it becomes a family decision if it becomes a multiple buyer decision you know to specifically target a price point and say look it's not just about making a book reader 
It's about making a book reader that an individual can make the choice themselves and hopefully even make it spontaneously. These are all understanding the exact elements of what you need before you scale. You gave a great example of People Express getting it wrong. But People Express was a great one that I actually heard live from the president of it. And the short of it, he says, like, you know, it's a great idea. I mean, really founded this idea of point-to-point air travel cheap. I mean, the, the original Ryanair. The only thing that they didn't realize before scaling is that, you know, one of the elements of it is you're going to bother all the other big airlines. And until you're ready to poke the bear, you know, there's an old saying that I love, which is, you know, don't hunt what you can't kill. Um, and, <laughs> and that's another good reason. I mean, it's only one reason of not scaling before, you know, competence. But that's a level, you know, do you have the competence to fight off the competition that not only exists, but is likely to come at you? Because what happened in People Express is they went off and they started to hit the Northeast Corridor. It's like, fine, you can fly from Paducah, Kentucky to, you know, Miami, maybe, or, you know, something like that, but don't come into the corridor. Um, And so what happened is the airlines got together, price matched um, People Express. People Express bled cash because now all of a sudden they were making no profits. They were still operating. They were still in demand. They were profitless. And in three months of cash flow, they were gone. They didn't have three months, more than three months of cash flow. Pretty, you know, and then the interesting thing is you see this again and again and again. Lots of other stories. I mean, you know, the biggest reason most entrepreneurs fail is the inability to see cash flow through times. But but the power of the bigs to come in and just say, look, we're going to drive the profit out of this business. We, we can't stay there forever ourselves, but we can stay there longer than you can. <laughs> you know, so basically the majors gave up all their profitability in the corridor, which is an enormously profitable place for, you know, Delta and American and stuff. But they said, you know, but they saw the danger and they said this, you know, this People Express thing catches on. We're going to have a Southwest. We're going to have a Ryanair. We're going to have 40 different, you know, um, song, you know, unless we create our own and um, these other ones. But, uh, but so they, they strategically did the thing they had to do. There's a couple of warnings you give here on scaling, and I'll I'll give you I'll give you the three, and please bring these whatever way you wish. You say first, scaling too hastily can obfuscate the reasons for a company's initial success. Executives might not replicate what works because they haven't figured out the formula yet, or may not have fully realized the importance of a certain processes. I'll park that one. Second, you say scaling too soon or too quickly can introduce problems that distract management from perfecting the distinctive valuing of the offering. And third, scaling too soon or too quickly can invite unwanted attention, as you said just there, from incumbent operators. Maybe you'll expand on any of those other ones you see. Yeah, well, the one of not knowing what it is that actually creates the value. So, I, I, you know, a good example, and I think it's a right example there, is, again, the Starbucks. So what happened with Starbucks is they scaled traditionally. They came up with a model that was really successful. Then they rapidly scaled thousands and thousands and thousands of stores, all green, all with the mermaid, all with the, I mean, all identical, right? And 
the interesting thing, and even um, you know, Anthony Bourdain talked about it in his book about restaurants, which was interesting. A restaurant is really not about creativity. It's about delivering a high-quality menu item exactly the same again and again and again. So that if you go back five years later and say, I love the veal piccata, you get the same veal piccata. If it changes all the time, there's no reliability, you don't go back. And so when you think about it, it's like the nice thing about a Starbucks is you know exactly what you're getting when you go in there. Now, the problem is if you scale it and replicate it too fast and then make a decision like, well, you know, it's kind of slow to get the coffees. We can make a lot more money if we could accelerate how fast they make the coffee. Why don't we put in a machine to make the cappuccino and grind the beans instead of the way we're doing it now where we got these people, you know, tamping and padding and doing whatever. So they put in all these machines to make the coffee. Well, the problem was part of what made Starbucks worth it was, A, partly the line. It turns out that some people actually like a little bit of weight for their coffee because they feel they're getting a handmade product and the smell. And it turned out that the machines, the new machines, didn't have any smell because it was all kind of, you know, encapsulated. And that was also, you know, it's like, well, we'll make more money if we get rid of this losing, you know, self-grinding bag thing. It takes people too long to grind and bag the coffee for individual customers. It's not really profitable. Yeah, but all that grinding and stuff filled the air with the smell of coffee. So what happens is you get rid of the, you use these other coffee machines and you get, you get rid of the, the grinding of the coffee. And what you get is a really boring coffee shop <laughs> that doesn't even feel very coffee. Oh, um, and so that's this thing of like, do you really understand, you know, so you got to understand what it is that makes you great before you, you know, because the point is, you know, before they could before they could figure that out, they had put in ten thousand coffee making machines. Do you know a great example you give of doing it right? You you mentioned to me before when we were talking about your expertise in thought leadership that it can be dangerous to give an example because people then kind of either dismiss it or kind of go, "Oh, I could never be like them." This is one of those examples that people might dismiss, but there's so much wisdom in how they manage their scaling which was the porsche cayenne kind of a similar story origin story to the lexus but it was how they scaled which was the real genius yeah the uh well the cayenne is is a fascinating story simply because of you know at first simply because how many people said they couldn't do it and shouldn't do it um the second one was the the nature of how much of the business wound up being in cayenne and how it funded everything else so, you know, quickly went to a third and it might even be half of their sales at one point um, turned out to be uh, cayennes and, and scaling it. But, you know, a part of that element, again, was, well, can we maintain the Porsche aspect to it? So can we build an SUV that actually is true to being a Porsche? And, and again, it's like, well, you can easily build an SUV, but if you don't bring it to a Porsche level. So that's kind of an exa a good example of. Um, you know, and, and also understanding, you know, what they did pretty well is they get, some would say they guessed right. Some would say their market research was exceptional, depending on how, you know, how much you know about the company and how you want to look at it. But to recognize that their customers, their high-end customers wouldn't abandon them for that. And particularly if they took care to make sure it wasn't an inferior product. And so we have lots of examples where we look at, you know, because that ex that idea of extending, and that's where the first book is actually called Mass Affluence, 
And the only reason I jumped to that is because this idea of affluent customers, customers of different capability to spend demand that you have a range of price points. Because what you want to do is you want to capture folks at every slice of their ability to spend. So you look at the range of like BMWs, you look at the range of Mercedes. So that's another element, right? But the problem is the bottom end Mercedes can't be so bad. It can't be, you know, a Yugo <laughs> while the top end, because people aren't going to want the top end, you know, buying a Maybach, you know, to go from a Maybach to a C-Class is a pretty big jump. And how you manage that and keep customers bought in at every one of those price levels, you know, so it's sort of a chapeau, a tip of the hat to Mercedes, you know, for managing that because when you think of those eyes like that is not easy and especially when you're sharing components across it. and that's another thing we'll get into in book three but the importance of being able to share components when you start to design these things and so like you know bmw too sharing the same components you know a lot of the steering wheels or at least the door locks you know all the way up so the bottom gets a little better because hey it's got the same door locks as the seven series um and you get better volumes of stuff, but that's a real a real trick. As a last way to for today's diptych, for today's part one of the diptych, I don't know what a, a, a uni tick is. It like one side, <laughs> one side of the diptych. <laughs> I think it's just called okay, art. Our, one piece of art is today's episode, and then we'll next day we'll go on. Well, what can you do to prepare for tomorrow for the jump? What can you put in place, people? What can you do about skills? What can you do about mindset with inside the organization? Because what I really like about this book is that you have a true understanding of the people challenge of this as well. The the mental challenge, the actual how do you how do you start to even see those people, how to nurture them and grow them within the organization to have this really serious talent that you call. But a, gr- a great last example. And this one appealed to me because I remember actually growing up and my mother having one of those real, they they were aluminium pots and she'd be boiling nappies. And I remember having, there was this kind of like uh, pincers made of wood that she'd be <laughs> to clean the nappies well enough so the kid wouldn't get a nappy rash. But this brought to mind the great example you talked about. Well, if you're going to scale something or if you're going to build something that's appealing enough to customers you have to understand that you have to have it at a price that's going to entice them to open their pocketbook in the first place. And Pampers really, really worked hard to achieve that. And I love the stories of this. And I thought this would be a great closing story today. That's a great example because it uh, combines a bunch of stuff. It includes the BME. So the big enough market insight is that women are becoming empowered. Women are going to work. Women, a lot of things that they don't really have the time and the place anymore to be doing laundry and be doing, you know, uh, diapers and, and, and washing diapers. And so the thing is, how do we get, you know, women out of the laundry room and that and allow that? So lots of social forces. So there's a recognition of this trend. And then there's the understanding that, well, because P&G was fantastic at going out into the field. And actually sitting with women who are doing laundry, and not just women in New York or, you know, wherever, but, you know, women in the States, but women in Ghana, women in, you know, all over the world. Because generally it's the women that were doing the laundry. And it was the recognition that, okay, we want a replacement for this. We need a solution 
for laundry, but what is it and how do we do that? And there were always disposable diapers, which is interesting. A, a fascinating aspect that we learned in doing is that there were travel diapers that were paper diapers years before um, disposable diapers became a thing. So disposable diapers was way older than what people think. The problem with disposable diapers is they were expensive and people didn't have the money to pay for it. So the price point, the relative price point of a disposable versus the do-it-yourself, wash your own, was like this. But trends of affluence, but knowing that the trend of affluence was going to come, as well as the science of paper and paper management. Because what P&G did is they spent two years coming creating the technologies that could create and lower the cost of a disposable diaper from whatever was six or seven cents a piece, 10 cents a piece, high quarter, down to 3.5 cents. And so they were very scientific and knew exactly what the price point was that the average woman would make the economic calculation and would shift. And they realized that they couldn't do that until they had hit that price point. And price points is a, a fantastic limiter to this idea of um, competence before scaling, right? Because if it's just too expensive, it's always going to be a niche product. And, you know, I'll give you another great one with P&G and Unilever and the others, but it was the packets, the sachets of soap and shampoo for poor economies. It's like, Nobody's got the money to buy these huge bottles, right? In some ways, you know, nobody's got the money to buy the premium products sometimes. So can we introduce a more affordable, you know, product? But the key is that has to be in what we discovered, which is really interesting, is that that has to, and I joked about the $3.99, but it comes together. It's science. And so one of the things we haven't talked too much about, but, you know, doing your market research for real, using science, knowing, you know, the specific price points and the details and you know, whether we saw it in Toyota, whether we saw it in, you know, with the Lexus of the ball, the, the, you know, rolling a ball bearing across the things with one of their famous commercials. But the point is like, they didn't know kinda, and this is the big point and we'll close it with this. They didn't know kinda what was necessary. They didn't have an idea of what was, it. they knew exactly where they were getting to and when they would be ready beautiful beautiful way to close today's episode paul um it's been an absolute pleasure and and you notice beside me those people who are watching us on youtube i have two copies of jumping the s curve that's because paul kindly sent me a signed copy that i'll relish and i'll keep on the i was telling paul that i i have a kind of a uh I used to collect records. You mentioned vinyl earlier on. I used to collect records, and now books are my new vinyl. So <laughs> I, I collect these books with absolute pleasure. I, I'm not allowed to keep them at home, so I keep them here in the studio, including my vinyl, by the way, that's over there. The storage locker business thanks you, Aiden. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's been a, a real pleasure talking to you. And I, the reason I mentioned the two books is I'm going to give away one of my one of my copies there as well to our audience. Just sign up to the innovationshow.io where you'll find the Substack. And if you sign up to the Innovation Substack, you'll automatically be placed into the weekly drawer to win a copy of that. I've got so much in I've got so much inspiration from this book. You you said about not knowing kinda. I actually think about 
writing in a similar way. You're constantly collecting eclectic readings from a wide range of areas and they'll come together and then every so often a book or an article can spew out of that. And that's certainly the way I think about that writing. And you've absolutely given me so much inspiration behind that, Paul. So I want to thank you for that and for your time. And I look forward to part two the, of the diptych next time. And then we'll get into the other books as well. Fascinating readings. And I highly, highly recommend them. And they're available on Kindle as well as in paperback on Amazon on all platforms as well. Paul Nunes, author of Jumping the S-Curve, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aidan. My pleasure, truly. Cheers. <laughs>